Bibles this morning to Song of Solomon, chapter number 2. Song of Solomon, chapter number 2. What a blessing, privilege it is to be in the house of the Lord with you today. Wasn't that a good week of meetings this past week? Amen. God used it in my heart and in my mind and uh, and in my Christian walk. I, I told my Sunday school class this morning, every time we have week of meetings like that, I walk away feeling like a better Christian but a worse preacher. Amen. Uh, I appreciate the, the messages that were given. They always draw me closer to the Lord. Uh, but I always walk away saying, man, I wish I could preach like those fellas do. Amen. They, uh, men of God, and I appreciate uh, both of them and the work that they do. I appreciate your faithfulness, by the way, uh, being here, being present. I appreciate your faithfulness this morning. Uh, a lot of times you, you, there, there's like a revival hangover in the church. Amen. After you've had revival, all of a sudden, Sunday, everybody's up at Dollywood. Amen. But uh, I appreciate you being here this morning. And I know that you've come hungry, expecting, anticipating uh, the move of the Lord. And we're going to do our best just to be obedient to Him this morning. Song of Solomon, chapter number 2. We're going to read the entirety of this chapter. Now, it's not very long. Uh, and we'll do some explaining uh, after we pray as to what is transpiring in this chapter. But I think most people familiar with their Bibles will be able to pick up on the themes that are found here. Verse number 1, the Word of God says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to his banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head. His right hand doth embrace me. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the window, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. O my dove that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Take us the little foxes, the or the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Until the day break, and the shadows flee away, Turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. Let's pray together. Lord, we do love you and thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. Now, Lord, we need your help this morning. And Father, we need power. We need unction. We need your presence. We know that you never leave us nor forsake us. But, Lord, we do want this morning to decrease as your felt presence, as your manifest presence increases. Lord, we want you to have liberty We know that, Lord, if what takes place today is not done by Your hand, Your power, Your Spirit, we know it will be to no avail. So help us to get out of the way, Father. Help us to merely be a vessel fit to the Master's use. Speak to each and every heart this morning, Lord. Touch hearts according to Thy will. and Help us to be obedient to the leading 
and the preaching of Thy Word. We'll be sure to thank You for it. Now we ask it in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to read a passage of Scripture or two for you to give you a little bit of understanding about what's transpiring in the book of the Song of Solomon. Now most of you know that the book of the Song of Solomon is a love letter. Uh, It describes a relationship between Solomon and one of his wives. But we understand that it goes beyond even their immediate and earthly relationship, and it looks forward to a spiritual reality that I'm not even sure if Solomon had a full comprehension of all that the Lord was saying uh, through his heart-sick and love-sick pen as he uh, pinned down these words of love and adoration uh, for his wife. But I want you to think about what's transpiring here. You've got a bride and you've got a bridegroom. They love one another. They care for one another. And they are longing for the day when they will get to be together and get to see one another and enjoy each other's company and fellowship. And I want you to think about some New Testament verses with me. I've got a couple in mind in particular. Paul writing in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, giving instruction concerning the home and how the home ought to be and how we ought to uh, order the home. He says this in Ephesians 5, verse number 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. Now, did you notice that comparison? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. In other words, the relationship between the husband and wife and between the uh, the Lord Jesus and the church, there is a similarity, there is a connection drawn. It says that He loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Now, I've been pastoring a year or two now, and I've counseled many young couples and helped them prepare for those early days of their nuptials. And we've talked about what the Lord orders in the home. We've gone to this passage of Scripture a great many times and looked to the scriptural order of the home. But let it not be lost what Paul says in verse 32. He says, this is a great mystery... But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So in other words, when Paul wrote this, he was giving instruction about the home, but that was sort of secondary. In a primary sense, what he was trying to do was he was trying to teach us something about the love that Christ has for the church. And he said that the love that Christ had for the church is like the love that a husband has for his wife. So I guess we could say that the church is like the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in John chapter number 3, John speaking about his role in announcing the coming of the Lord Jesus said in verse 27, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Now, who's the bride? We've already established that's the church. Well, who has the church? Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. So if the church is the bride, I think we can authoritatively, scripturally, clearly, understandably say that the Lord Jesus, He must be the bridegroom. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Now, somebody's going to say, that's good, preacher, and I guess that's a good Bible lesson, but what does all that mean to me? Well, when you study through the book of Song of Solomon, 
It'll begin to breathe in vibrancy in life when you recognize that the Lord's trying to teach us how we need to love as the church, how we need to love the Lord Jesus, and teaching us how the Lord Jesus loves us. And I want us to consider a few things about this relationship that we see in the verses we've read in Song of Solomon chapter number 2. Let me say a word first off about us loving the bridegroom. And I'll go ahead and admit to you, I'll be honest. How's that, a Baptist preacher being honest? The Lord gave me some of this. I had another message I was going to preach and some of it just got scratched out on an envelope this morning while you was worshiping. And so I don't have everything alliterated, but there are some things that jumped out on, on the page from me and God spoke to my heart about. First, I want you to notice the description that's given of the Lord Jesus. Verse number 1 says that He is the rose of Sharon and He's the lily of the valleys. You know what that tells me? That tells me something first off about His personality. He is the rose of Sharon. Now the rose of Sharon is a flower that grows in the Middle East, but it does not grow in the lush places. It does not grow in the green places. It grows in the desert places. It grows in the wild places. It grows in the places where there is no life. And if you were to be traveling along through the desert, you would see a lot of thorns and and thistles and bramble bushes. But you'd look out and every now and then you would see a rose blooming in that environment. That's the rose of Sharon. And it reminds me of the Lord Jesus in His earthly life and ministry. Uh, The book of Isaiah said that He would grow up before us as a tender root, as a branch out of a dry ground. Uh, The Bible says there's no form nor comeliness that we should desire Him. Uh, But that's the Jews looking at Him humanly speaking. Uh, Solomon here gives us the perspective of the church that though the Jews looked at Him and said there's no form nor comeliness, you and I as saved individuals, uh, you and I as uh, people of the grace of God, you and I as born-again believers, we see Him as the rose blooming in the desert. In a wicked and weary world full of hate, full of rage, full of sin, He and He alone stood as the light of the world. Uh, He and He alone stood as the expression of God's righteousness. He and He alone... uh, You know, there's just about nothing I hate more than thorn bushes. Anybody say amen to that? I was cleaning out a fence row the other day at the house, and man, it had them blackberry bushes. I like to eat blackberries, but boy, I hate to pick blackberries, especially wild ones. Those thorns like to eat me alive. Uh, there's nothing I hate worse than thorns. They're dangerous. They're uh, they're painful. They're uncomfortable. They're unpleasant. They're unprofitable. They're a reminder of sin. But can I remind you that though the Lord Jesus walked amongst a world that was broken, was dangerous, was unpleasant, was hostile towards Him, uh, though He walked through a sin-stained and sin-cursed world, He Himself was none of those things. He walked through this world in utter perfection. In another place, the Bible says here in Song of Solomon about Him that He's altogether lovely. In a desert of nothing good, of nothing righteous, the Lord Jesus stands as a rose of Sharon. Not only is He the rose of Sharon, but He says here He's the lily of the valleys. How many of you know that you have valley experiences in life? And very often in the valley, especially a deep valley, especially a dark valley, there's not enough sunlight for hardly anything to grow. But aren't you glad to know that the Lord Jesus, listen, He blooms and He blesses in the valleys of life just as surely as He does in the mountaintops of life. I promise you this, when you're going through a valley, if you'll look around and look for Him, you'll find He's just the same. You'll find that He's precious. You'll find He's everything you need Him to be. I can't promise you, you won't go through valleys. In fact, if I'm being honest, I can just about promise you, you will go through valleys. But I can also promise you this, that He will be the lily in your valley. 
and He'll be present there to brighten your way. I see His description of Himself, but then I want you to notice the bride's description of Him. Look what it says. First, she describes who he, who she is to Him. Isn't this interesting? In verse 1, says, I'm the lily, or that He's the lily of the valleys. In verse 2, says, as the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. I said a moment ago, man, I hate thorn bushes, and I hate getting entangled them out and, and try to... If there's anything in there worth getting to, it is always a painful process getting to it. How many of you know this to be true, that the Lord Jesus, He saw value in us. He didn't see us as a weed. He saw us as a lily. But the problem is we were a lily among thorns. If He wanted to get to our love, He was going to have to pass through some thorns. Can I say it this way? That for Him to get to our love, for Him to redeem us, for Him to pluck us from our situation and to position us in a glorified and in a righteous position, He had to wear some thorns in order to do that. One of the reasons I cleaned out that fence row is because it would attack me every time I mowed the yard. I'd be going down the road and, or going down the, the fence row and if I wasn't paying attention, man, I'd look up and that thing just reach out and grab me, grab hold of me. And uh, it was a treacherous thing. Uh, you couldn't avoid it. It, w- it would hang on me. Sometimes if I wanted to mow the yard, I'd wind up wearing thorns. In a similar fashion, can I say this, for the Lord Jesus uh, to redeem us, He had to wear some thorns. It, 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 it included, it involved some pain, it involved some bloodshed, it involved some discomfort for Him to redeem us. We're like the lily among the thorns. But how do we feel about Him? Look at verse 3. It says, As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. This is interesting because uh, an apple tree from a distance does not look all that different from any other tree. Uh, You might mistake it for uh, a tree of similar height, a tree of similar foliage, but upon closer inspection, you find it's not like any of the other trees around it. You know why? Because though it looks similar from a distance, upon closer inspection, it is a fruitful tree. It bears fruit. You know, the Lord Jesus, uh, if you looked at Him from a distance in His earthly life, you might not have saw anything spectacular about Him, particularly as He was growing up. I believe He lived a life that would have looked very in similar fashion to the average child that grew up in that day in Judah. Uh, But upon closer inspection, you saw that his life was not like everyone else's. His life was precious. His life was unique. And let me say this, in this day of grace, we look retrospectively and we can see how fruitful the life of the Lord Jesus was. Uh, Later on, it's interesting. And let me just make a point about this. But when describing their love in verse number 5, the bride says, "...stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love." Whenever she first found him, she found him as an apple tree. And now later on when she's longing for him, you know what she wants? She wants apples. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, Let me say it this way if I can. Uh, When we first meet him, we meet him. He's that apple tree. And we may go in our relationship with him in a lot of directions for a long ways and go through a lot of ups and downs. But there's value, there's preciousness sometimes in going back to that relationship. Him as the apple tree. Preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. Whenever you met him, you met him as your Savior. And you get to know Him in a lot of ways. You get to know Him as your sovereign. You get to know Him as your shepherd. You get to know Him in a lot of ways. But there's something to be said when we're going through struggles in life uh, to going back and casting our mind backwards and reminding ourselves of the great work He did as our Savior. He describes, uh, the bride describes Him as an apple tree. He looks similar from the distance, but upon closer inspection, uh, He is fruitful. Notice what it says, I sat down under His shadow with great delight, and His fruit was sweet to my taste. 
the picture is that of a person out in the wild that upon approaching that apple tree, upon finding that apple tree, just parks themselves underneath it and fills themselves upon the apples that were a product of that tree. Oh man, this reminds me of what happened when I got saved and probably what happened when you got saved. Uh, what did we do when we found that tree, that apple tree, that one that was altogether lovely, that one that was unlike any other we had ever met? We got under the shadow of His tree. His tree was not a pleasant tree to look upon. His tree uh, is described in the book of Galatians, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. That tree was not an apple tree to our eye, but that tree was the cross of Calvary. But we did just exactly what this bride did. We got up under the shadow of that tree and found satisfaction and found sustenance and just sat up under that tree until we were satisfied. I'm glad to report to you this morning that tree is still saving. That tree is still powerful. That tree is still abundant. And as we get ourselves... Listen, if you're here lost today, crawl up under the cross of Calvary. Fall at His feet. And you'll find there satisfaction for every one of your soul's needs. Sat down under His shadow with great delight and His fruit was sweet to my taste. What did He do as a result? He brought me to the banqueting house and His banner over me was love. The banner in the Old Testament, uh, it described the, the, the standard that would be carried forth into battle. And what it does, the declaration of that flag, you know what it does? When, when an army marches onto a field and it's got that banner held high, they use those flags, they use those standards to declare their intent to the enemy. Uh, they are allowing the enemy to know that their army has arrived, that they're ready for war, that they're ready for battle. I'm glad to know when the Lord Jesus approached me, you know what His standard was? You know what His banner was? It was not war. It was not righteous vengeance. It was not vindication. It was not vengeance and justice. But it was love. It was love. His banner over me was love. He took me to the banqueting house. We're getting somewhere this morning. You still with me? His, he took me to the banqueting house. He's never quit feeding me. He's never quit meeting my needs. And He's never quit loving me. I find here the love of the bridegroom and the loving of the bridegroom. She's describing the love relationship that they have one to another. Uh, verse number 5 says, Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. In other words, you know what she's saying? I'm so in love, it changed me. I'm so in love that I'm sick on the inside as a product of it. But probably if you've ever been 13, 14 years old and had a crush, you know what it is to be sick of love. We call it that puppy love, am I right? Where it's all you can think about, where it's all that you obsess about, where every note you write is a love note to that person, where every message that you send, you're sending to them, where every waking moment you're thinking about that person, wondering if they're thinking about you. In other words, it changes you when you fall that deeply in love with somebody. Can I say this? When I fell that deeply in love with Him, it changed me. It became all that I was about. And you say, preacher, you really think something to yourself. No, listen, I, like many of you, have had seasons of life where I've left that first love, where I've not had that same passion, that same commitment like I ought to be. Can I just be honest with you this morning? I want to have that kind of relationship. I want to be so in love with Jesus that I think of nothing else. That until I have Him, His, His will, His desires in my life, His fellowship, His felt presence, that I am not satisfied. Verse number 6 says this, His left hand is under my head and His right hand doth embrace me. Now you can think what you want to think about this, but it seems apparent to me in chapter number 2 that the bridegroom is not present there with the bride. Over and over and over again, I mean before this and after this, it describes 
how that she's waiting for the bridegroom to come. Now, you can think what you want. I'll tell you what I think. I think she's daydreaming. I think she's thinking about being in His presence. She's thinking about enjoying His fellowship. She's thinking about them being together. We might say it this way, that her greatest dream was just to be with the bridegroom. Hey, listen, when we really fall in love with Jesus the way that we want, there may be a lot of things we desire in life, but our greatest ambition will be His presence, His will, His desire for our life. There's a lot of things it's okay to want, and there's nothing in the world wrong with wanting them. preacher was preaching this last week on priorities, but can I tell you what should be the greatest priority of all in our life? Uh, there's nothing wrong with wanting a good bank account, nothing wrong with wanting a nice car, nothing wrong with wanting a nice house. But above all those things should tower our desire to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Look at verse number 7 with me. I see the bride loving the bridegroom in the first six verses, but then in verse number 7 she starts talking about looking for the bridegroom. She turns her attention and begins to talk to her companions. And she says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. Now, why does she say this? Because she knows and anticipates that once he awakes, what's going to happen? Verse 8, The voice of my beloved, Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. In other words... The bride anticipates that one of these days the bridegroom is going to be stirred awake. When he does, he's coming back for her and he's going to call her away, whisk her away, carry her away to their days of matrimony. You know, it reminds me of the condition the church is in today. Uh, we, or we might say the position the church is in today. Uh, we are living in a day now where the very next thing on God's prophetic calendar is for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming back for His bride. He's coming back for His love. He's coming back to carry us away out of this world. And just like the bride here, we ought to be looking for the bridegroom. Notice a few things she notes about his soon coming or his return. Verse 7, he notes that, she notes that the return of the bridegroom is a sovereign matter. Verse 7, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. In other words, he ain't coming back till he's ready to come back. You know, Christ made this statement about his own return that no man knoweth the day nor the hour, only the Father. He said, not even the Son knows the day nor the hour. Now, if you really get to thinking about that theologically, it'll tie your brainstem in knots. That's <laughs> a lot of things I don't understand about my Bible. I'm going to have to figure out when I get to heaven. But I do believe my Bible, and I believe it when it tells me that not even the Son knows when He returns. But can I tell you something? There is a moment, there is a time, unbeknownst to the Son of God, even Himself, unbeknownst to the testimony of Scripture, unbeknownst to any human being alive today, there is an appointed time in which He's coming back. It's sovereign. I, I, there, there's nothing you or I are going to do to hasten it. Uh, we say all the time, if the Lord tarries, is coming. But you know, and I say it, and I'll probably say it again, just to, uh, as form of habit. But you know, the Lord Himself said that He'll not come. He'll that He'll not tarry. That He will come. He'll not tarry. He's not waiting. He's waiting on the Father to tell Him. But the Father's not waiting. There is a appointed time in which He's going to return. His coming is sovereign. Let me note this though. Uh, His coming is short. Look at verse 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, He cometh. He cometh. Uh, it, It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but you rest assured, He is coming back. 
There is just, by the way, but a moment's notice from verse 7 to verse number 8. She says, don't wake him up. But then all of a sudden she hears his voice. And she recognizes that of a surety, he is coming back. Whenever the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven, we were given this promise that this same Jesus shall in like manner return again and come unto you. Uh, the Bible tells us that He will appear the second time without sin unto salvation to them that look for Him. I promise you this, uh, there are a lot of things that may be unsure in this day that we live in, but the rapture, the soon coming of the Lord Jesus, is a sure thing. Uh, you say, well, preacher, we've been all these years, preacher's been talking about it, it ain't never happened. Man, Peter called your number all the way back in the book of First Peter. When he said that uh, even in his day there were some that said uh, that all things had remained the same since the fathers had slept, since they had died, that people had been talking about the coming of the Lord for generation after generation. And Peter gives them this rebuke. He says, for this they are willingly ignorant that the world that, that was that then was uh, standing out of the water and in the water perished. In other words, he was saying this. There's people in Noah's day saying the judgment of God was never going to come. But sure enough, there came a day and the rain began to fall. Uh, they say are willingly ignorant. They know the truth. They know that the Lord may uh, wax long in His mercy and in His long-sufferingness towards us. But that does not mean that He has failed His promise. The Lord is not slack as some men count slackness, but His long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, the Lord isn't breaking His promise, uh, but He is trying to be benevolent with His promise. He is trying to uh, be uh, long-suffering with His promise. But you mark her down. There is coming a day when the Lord Jesus will return. It's a sure thing. It's a sure thing. Notice this. It is a sudden thing. I like how she describes the bridegroom here in verse number 9. She says, My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Now, we don't call them rows. We don't call them hearts. But what it's describing is a deer. Is a deer. And he says that that's how the Lord Jesus is. He's like a deer, like a young heart. You know what I think of when I think of a deer, when I think of a heart other than sausage and backstrap? Amen. Uh, other than that, what I think about is their swiftness. Their swiftness. Man, they, they, and they're big animals. But they just move around like they don't weigh anything. And when you spook one, it can go from right there, ten feet in front of you, to not within a thousand miles, it seems like, in just about two seconds flat. And the bride says that's how the bridegroom is. Notice this, notice where he is. Behold, he standeth behind our wall... He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. In other words, she says this. <laughs> she says that he is swift. He is fast. He is sudden in his movement. But she also notes that he is close in proximity. Uh, you know, we use the word imminent about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The return of the Lord is imminent. You know what the, the word imminent means? It means at the door. At the door. When you're at the door, there's nothing left but to walk through the door. Am I right? Oh, you got revival fever now. Wake up. When you're at the door, there's nothing left to do but go through the door. There are no steps left. You are at the door. The next step is through the door. That's how she describes the bridegroom. Says he's at the window, he's at the lattice work, he's at the door. Later on in chapter four, he describes she describes him as being at the door. In other words, the return of Lord Jesus is sudden. I can't tell you it'll be tomorrow. I can't tell you it'll be next week. It's known only in the infinite wisdom and counsels of God. But I do know this: two things. One, there is nothing left to happen before the rapture. 
It could happen at any moment. It could happen at any moment. And let me say this, it's at the door. It's at the door. It could happen. It's sudden. When it does happen, uh, there won't be time to call a revival meeting. When it does happen, there won't be time to call a prayer meeting. It'll happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The last trump will sound. It could happen at any moment. It is a sudden thing. But then look at verse 10. Notice that it is a saving return. Look what it says. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. This is why, for lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. And the time of the singing of birds is come. And the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. You didn't know a voice. A turtle had a voice, did you? It's talking about a turtle dove. <laughs> Verse 13, The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. His return is going to be a saving thing. How many of you are already complaining about winter and ain't even here yet? Anybody? One or two? Already getting rainy? Already my wife's home sick, sinus infection, cold, all that stuff. It's already, it's time, it's upon us. And uh, I love fall, we just don't get one. (laughs) Fall is my favorite, favorite season. Um, I remember we had one about 12 years ago. I've missed it ever since. Winter's already coming on. You know, you know when I hate winter most? Long about late January. Like this early, you're still kind of jazzed about it. You know, you're still like, oh, look how nice this is. I'm not just sweating to death. But man, by late January, by late winter, you're ready for winter to be gone. The season described here concerning the coming of the bridegroom is late winter. Uh, late winter. How many of you would say this? You feel like this earth is in late winter. Barren, fruitless, despair, desolate, miserable. Can I tell you something? If you're part of the bride of Christ, if you're saved by the grace of God, if you're a child of God, don't give up, my friend, because winter will soon be past. Spring is coming. The rain will be over and gone. I'm saying this, when He comes back for the bride, He's coming back to snatch us away out of this sin-broken world. And our last tear will have been shed, our last heartache felt, our last separation experienced. When that time comes, hey, that's why it's called the blessed hope. When that time comes, all that we've longed for will come to realization and all that we've loathed will be behind us and gone. I see her looking for the bridegroom. But then, and this is really what the Lord gave me, so that was a good introduction, right? I want to give you a couple simple thoughts here about longing for the bridegroom. Look at verse 14. In other words, let me say this before we even read it. The relationship that the bride and the bridegroom have, the way she felt about him and her concrete belief that he was coming back soon, it produced some desires, some ambitions, some longing in her heart. This is how I think every believer ought to be that believes Jesus is coming soon. Look at verse 14. She says, Oh, my dove that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. This is what she wants. She says, Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. In other words, it drove her to communion with Him. She said, What I want more than anything is just to be in your presence. What I want more than anything is just to hear your voice. What I want more than anything 
is just to see your face. Can I tell you something I found to be true in my Christian walk? I've known Christians my whole life, and I've been around a lot of God's people throughout the years. People that really believe Jesus is coming soon. People that are really in love with the Lord Jesus, they want to spend time with Him. They desire His presence. You know, that's part of the reason. Well, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say this. That's part of the reason revival's so good. Is Listen, you ready? You listen? Just to be frank with you, most folks that are willing to come out on a Monday night or Tuesday night, they really want His presence. Most folks willing to come out on a Thursday night or on a Friday night, they really want His presence. Now, don't get mad at me. I'm not saying anything about you if you was or wasn't there. I'm just saying the people that are there, they're not there because they have to be. They're there because they want to be. Undoubtedly, there's people that wanted to be that couldn't be. I know that. You're not telling me anything I don't know. I'm just saying the people that are there are typically the people that want to be there. They're people that want His presence. They're people that want His countenance. They're people that want to hear His voice. They're people that want to see His face. And you know what? God honors and rewards that desire. He that hungereth and thirsteth after righteousness, they're the ones that are filled. Listen, I'm saying this, that when we really fall in love with Jesus, we can't get enough of Him. We want to be in His presence. We want to hear the voice that we hear through His Word. We want to see His face in the sense of communing with Him, praying to Him, finding His will in our lives. We desire those things that drives us to communion. Not only does it drive us to communion, but notice the second thing. Uh, The bride exhorts, challenges herself to this. She has to be talking to herself because she can't be talking to Him because He's not there yet. But she says, take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. You know what? When, we're, when we really are longing for Him, it drives us to consecration. She describes the problems that could uh, uh, arise, the problems that could crop up in her feelings towards the bridegroom as foxes that spoil the vine. A fox is a small creature, but it's a destructive creature. It has the ability to decimate a whole crop of things, has the ability to destroy everything inside. It may be small, it may be insignificant. Can I say this? They're cute. Right? They're adorable little creatures until they're destroying your crops. You know, sometimes we get feeling like that about the sins that we have in our life. We get little pet sins and we think they're harmless. We think they're, we, we think they're pleasant. We think that they're no big deal. We think they're insignificant until they've destroyed the whole crop of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we really long for Him, when we really love Him, when we're really in love with Him, we'll take seriously even the small foxes, even the little things. Can I give you a little bit of advice with your marriage? Very often it's the small things that erode away the relationship that spouses have with one another. There can be big things, but you know what I've found? Most of the time when there's a big problem in a marriage, uh, both people, they strap on their big boy pants and they, they commit themselves to try to work through it. I'm talking about I've seen tragedies hit marriages. I've seen tragedies hit homes. And a lot of times when that happens, they'll buck up. They'll steal themselves. They'll gird themselves. They'll say, we're going to work this through. We're going to make it through this. Most of the time, it's not the big problems that erupt and erode families. Most of the time, it's those little things, those snide remarks the sarcasm, the cuttingness, the the lack of compassion and care and empathy towards each other. Those things just sort of erode away. You know, the same thing is true in our relationship with the Lord. Most of the time when big tragedies come into our life, son, the preacher gets up and preaches, we go to the altar, we weep, we commit ourselves to God, we've got the devil in our crosshairs, we've made up our mind, we're not going to give up. 
And usually we fare pretty well. You know, it's those little foxes that spoil the vine, though. When everything's going well, we start letting little sins creep into our life. We start allowing little things to take our attention away from the Lord Jesus, our commitment, our priority of Him in our lives to rob us of that. And it's not long before the whole vine has been spoiled. You really love Him. You really long to see Him. You really believe He could come back at any moment? Do you really believe that? Let me tell you something. If you believe that, it's going to change what you allow in your life. I don't want Him to find me with any sin in my life. I'm not saying I'm perfect or live any day of my life perfect. But you know there's a difference. We all make mistakes. We all sin daily. There's a difference between that and known unconfessed sin in our lives. And I, listen, I, I don't want Him to find me with any sin in my life if I can help it. You say, preacher, it might be a little thing. Is it going to be a little thing when you see Him face to face? We really believe that He's coming back. It'll drive us to consecration. And finally, and I'm done, let me say this, it'll drive us to commitment. Look what it says in verse number 16. My beloved is mine. And I am His. He feedeth among the lilies. My beloved is mine. And I am His. He feedeth among the lilies. It's interesting the way she said, He feedeth among the lilies, because she described her love amongst the love that other people had towards Him as being a lily among thorns. In other words, she describes the bridegroom as being one that feeds amongst those that love him. If she is a love, or if she is a lily because of her love towards him, and there are other lilies, then he feeds amongst those that love him. And inasmuch as he is present amongst those that know him and love him, she commits herself to want to be wholly his and committed unto him. In other words, she recognizes that though she's surrounded by people that love him, she wants to give her entire life to him. Let me tell you something, we don't have any problem saying the first part of that verse, my beloved is mine. We don't have any problem saying he's mine. Where we, where we stop short is sometimes we're not willing to say, and I'm his. Can I ask you a question this morning? You really believe Jesus is coming back? Does he have all of you? Every area of your life, you with me this morning? Every area of your life, every square inch of your life? Or is there a little area of bitterness that he doesn't have? Little, little area of, of, of sensualness or pleasure that he does not have. Little area of self-reliance and willfulness that he does not have. I'll tell you this, if we believe he's coming back at any moment, I believe one of the things it's going to do is cause us to want to make sure every bit of our lives is under his jurisdiction, his authority, his leadership, his rule. If you believe he's coming back, I believe we'll live like he's coming back. You say, preacher, that's not fair. There's, there's people that, that believe He's coming back, but they have struggles. Oh, yes, I agree. But it's kind of like prayer. You can tell the degree to which we believe in prayer by how much we pray. I believe there's people that believe He's coming back, but how much that they are willing to allow that belief in His return to dominate and to govern their lives might be a whole thing altogether different. Probably if I asked you how many people in this room believe He's coming back, probably every hand would go up. But can I ask you how much that belief is permeating and governing and delineating your life and determining how you live and how you behave? I'll tell you this, there's not a one of us in this room that doesn't need to live like He's coming soon more. Every one of us has areas of our life that we need to lay at His feet and say, Lord, I want to be found righteous, obedient, clean when You return.